gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. We can't just have a marching rally and then go have a beer. Life in this society, being at best, another bore. There remains the civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females, only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. You picked the wrong femme boy to mess with. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. You're, yeah, the bureaucracy. You got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview. One, it's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. Uh, Lucario is a spiritualist, possible discount voter. Nest and Lucas are in Japan. Hey, there's politics outside the U.S., you know. There's left-wing movements all over the world, okay? And I just think that's important. Sonic would be an accelerationist. And Jigglypuff, intersectional feminist queen. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. Okay, welcome to this live edition in the cold studio. What's to do? But anyway, you are listening to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Daniel Jonathan Platt. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. So, I am continuing in going through stories I've collected over the last three years. Um, though I've been pulling more recently from for this topic, which is to, today's topic is food stories um, or food politics, whatever. Always focusing on vegan politics, vegan things, uh, vegan rhetoric. And that will be the first hour for the, uh, uh, definitely, definitely. And the second hour will be more general food politics. Uh, but some fun stuff as well, I promise, because food is fun. Food, not just food politics, but just talking about food issues, farming. You know, I I always go ham it up. Not a full vegan myself, but I'm basically, you know, I get there. I'm pretty much there. Um, but I eat very, very little. I buy very little. If I ever do, I'm certainly off of milk and, uh, but not cheese products. So, hmm. but I do have some of the meats, uh, the cheese or meat, uh, cheese substitutes sometimes. And I did have a butter plant-based butter that wasn't that bad. Uh, cause it was made with like coconut. Yeah. Coconut oil. So anyway, so let's just go right into it since I don't have any, Let's see, personal topics to address or things on my mind. Obviously, there's lots on my mind, but uh, I think a lot more of it and more of it is personal. That is for another day. Just want to get through everything in my article bank 
and then I can move forward with the show. I'm excited to do interviews and focus on local issues and talk about things uh, in my own neck of the woods. Because basically, this show, I have a selfish reason for doing this show, folks. It's to get to the bottom of what my personal, what the strategy really is. There's all these different choices, and there's a lot of policy papers, white papers, a lot of elder leftists that have certain strategies and tactics that they're wedded to or that they feel are best. And I listen to them, you know, and there's, and there's others and don't want to get too confusing about like, who am I referring to or whatever, but it's not really about who it's about just that there's this, you know, menagerie of choice. So it's overwhelming of how to do politics, especially online where it's also uh, confusing because there's so much that's illusion and fake and it's hard to know what's real, what's a good tactic when somebody's posting something about their politics What's real about it? Anyway, as always, it's what you do. So let's just get on the vegan bandwagon. And always I will start with something that more talks about what the problem is and the problem to solve. The problem to solve is that there is a major cognitive dissonance with people and animals. Uh, Humanity's place in ecology. So this, this food episode also doubles as an ecology episode, of course. You know, there's a tons of headlines I can just read off from Tree Hugger that I was just looking through. If we just cut, if we just cut beef, we would have the amount of land that we use for farming. That kind of stuff. I mean, we're just 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 cows, cow farming rather. But anyway, the article from this is from this is not a political site. It's from uh, Technology Networks, Neuroscience News and Research. And it is called, Why the Meat Paradox Causes Cognitive Dissonance for Millions of People. So these are scientists of the mind uh, and the brain and a little bit of sociology thrown in there. So this is a recent review. Let's see, a recent review paper has revealed the reasons behind a piece of cognitive dissonance that many of us perform daily called the meat paradox. At the heart of the paradox is this conflict. Most of us like animals, but will happily eat them when they are housed in cruel conditions. Or rather, we'll happily eat animals that are housed in cruel conditions. So first, the problem. Well, repeated surveys show that the me... Let's see, let's look over... This isn't written by anyone in particular, is it? No, no, it is. A um, Ruri McKenzie, published November of last year. While repeated surveys show that the majority of us care about animals... Reducing the number of animals we eat is not just a target for food animal welfare. It is also, it will also help combat the climate crisis and improve our health. But even with all these good reasons for not eating meat, roughly 95% of people chow down nonetheless. The study was published in the Social Psychological Bulletin. So is Sarah Galdridge, a doctoral candidate at RUROU in Cambridge, that's the UK Cambridge, was the study's first author. Gainbridge, no, Gainbridge noticed that while many people she knew rightly shared cute pictures of animals and regarded themselves as animal lovers, they still ate meat. Gainbridge's subsequent review of available literature of the topic turned up 73 papers that had attempted to quantify the reasons behind this paradox. The review looked at both the triggers 
and strategies of the paradox. A trigger is essentially an event that prompts someone who eats meat but cares about animal welfare to recognize the double-think involved in their position. This isn't, says Gaindridge, a very pleasant th feeling. The most common triggers were, for example, reminding people of the animal origins of their meat. That can just be very triggering, because people tend to, for example, when they eat meat, forget about the animal's existence, to forget that the meat comes from the animals. As soon as you remind people that meat comes from animals, this can really trigger that discomfort, because it basically stops their ability to disassociate. It reminds them of where the meat is coming from. So how about taking a direct approach to this? The discomfort that comes from the meat paradox forces the people experiencing it into one of three roots. Now the great thing about this article, or the thing I like about it, is of course that cognitive dissonance appears in all sorts of ways throughout our society and ourselves that we can examine. When do I get cognitive dissonance? You know, when do I see it in others? And so it's not just about, you know, veganism or, or eating meat. It can be applied to uh, war. It can be applied to how we think about poverty, how we think about all sorts of things. You know, you're driving down the street and you see someone busking, someone homeless, and you're hit with cognitive dissonance. You know, I'm doing well. I feel like things are going well with me, but obviously my society is not. And that causes discomfort. But there's, and there's three ways people usually react to cognitive dissonance. Three roots. Changing their moral values to decide they don't actually care about animal welfare, altering their behavior to eat less or no meat, or by performing a behavior called disengagement. The latter involves using mental tricks to minimize the discomfort felt when feeling cognitive dissonance, and Gaindridge explains that these fall into two categories, a direct or indirect. So an indirect approach essentially involves trying not to think about it. Pushing any images of chickens in cramped cages or barns to the back of your mind. The use of terms like livestock can also come under this banner, acting as a barrier between what's on your plate and a living, breathing animal. So this is essentially most PR, to get people thinking about something else or to not think about a problem when a news story or issue is talked about. This is when we talk of Orwellian doublethink or newspeak, Though in the novel 1984, Newspeak is meant to reduce the amount of ways you can talk about something. And if you can't talk about it, you're not thinking about it. So it reduces the amount of thinking people do and thus dumb down. You know, when we mean, oh, you're dumbing, it's dumbing people down. Clues is what kind of language is being used. Is less language being used? What kind of words are being used? More words are better? Or changing the words? So one recent example when talking about uh, when we give uh, now when uh, the State Department uh, sends weapons and arms various groups, whether they be neo-Nazi or otherwise, um, they call it lethal aid. See, it has the word aid in it, so it's aid, but it's lethal aid. <laughs> it's, 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 it's ammunition and weapons. Uh, no longer, what would, what would it be called before? You know, arms dealing, arming, arming insurgencies. We don't want to talk about our role in destabilizing the world. So the State Department will choose to talk about it in ways of giving aid to people. 
because everyone likes giving aid. Well, unless you think that the 1% of the U.S. budget that goes to aid is too much. We shouldn't be giving aid to other people. Why should we care about other people? But they turn it around, right? Libertarians rightfully point out, well, we're giving out aid, but we're also giving out weapons and destabilizing the world. We should just do none of it. Of course, that's not the left position. The left position is we should share and share alike, especially when one has more. Simple charity. It's not quite solidarity. That would be like a trade policy where if we're trading with someone with a smaller economy than ours, then they should have to get a better deal out of it, like they get a discount. So anyway, back to cognitive dissonance approaches. So an indirect approach essentially involves trying not to think. Yeah, that's the indirect approach. So the direct strategy uh, instead to confront the paradox head on. You're really trying to justify your meat consumption, says Gandridge. Some of the strategies identified in the paper include denying that animals feel pain, denying that animals have intelligence, sentience, or even consciousness. The four ends. The strategy involves categorizing meat consumption as one of four things. Normal, natural, necessary, or nice. It also explores, this article also explores something that I've actually, I didn't encounter it this way. It was, it was an ecological episode I did in the past where I discussed an article about surveying how when uh, there's a stigma when men recycle, that men recycle less or at a lower rate than women because there is this feminine, caring, compassionate stigma, like, uh, like homophobia attached to recycling. It's like, I'm gay if I recycle. I'm feminine. I'm not manly if I care about the earth or the ecology that I live in. It's manly to destroy. <laughs> so anyway, this also goes for vegetarian men who face stigma. Gaindridge's review also highlighted some key differences between individuals in terms of how they tried to get around the meat paradox. We basically find that men tend to be more resistant to reducing their meat consumption than women, when, and they tend to use different strategies. Men tend to be using more direct strategies, whereas women tend to be using more indirect ones. This increased reluctance to cut down on meat among men likely explains the gender split in vegan and vegetarian diets. 63% of vegans are women. Research has found that when males, for example, reduce their meat consumptions or convert to veganism, that they're subject to a lot of stigma, perhaps more than women. Male stereotypes of strength being intrinsically linked to meat consumption, something which no one told this guy, are also a key factor. I'm going to click that link just for the... Uh, let's see, Butter Builder, who's been vegan since 98, explains how to build muscle on a plant-based diet. And it's a picture of a hunk of a man. Though, it's also a very slim body as well, but it's all muscle. Okay, I'm getting feelings from that. Anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. Or am I? I'll keep it ambiguous. So, a less meaty future? Could Gaindridge's findings be used to identify better ways to encourage the consumption of less meat? Or, well, any behavioral change, social change. So while uh, Gaindridge says more research is needed to find an exact approach, we need to understand that people perhaps aren't responding in negative ways because they don't care, Gaindridge added. Actually, people may be responding in negative ways because they care too much, and this is what's making them feel uncomfortable. So this is what I, like, um, I'm thinking about like when I canvas, and people either give a reaction of apathy or any kind of negative reaction. It's not a majority. It's it's my reactions when I canvass and talk about politics with others. It's always it's like a bell curve. 
majority or neutral. Apathy is how I describe it. But a negative reaction is like, well, they're probably actually thinking about it all, all, all the time. And here, like, someone from the Green Party shows up to say, ask them to be involved or to think about it again. It's about trying to find a way, back to the article, about trying to find a way to talk about these issues that encourages behavior change in a positive way and doesn't make people respond in a negative one. We absolutely need to talk about these issues, but we need to do it in a way that is non-blaming, says Dandridge. I always try to avoid blaming, especially when talking to individuals. I talk of structural issues, but this actually also gets negative reactions to, from people. So I'm not sure if this is that helpful advice. Because when we talk about structural issues, if people don't have a mindset of thinking of systems in the, as a society, as a, as a group of systems that act on us and we act on it, but it's like it makes the problem too big to be solved by you and me. And so you get a kind of, well, you can't do anything about it. But we're talking about more individual behaviors here. You know, the choice of being vegan uh, as a consumer choice. But let's, you know, I've, I've discussed how that's wrong. It should be way bigger than that, which I will get to later. This is just the starting point here. So it's about trying to find a way, uh, non-blaming. She further explained that taking the wrong approach can lead to people further sticking their heads in the chicken feed, or even in rare cases, doubling down on their meat consumption to express their displeasure and being told what to do. Or like, say, you're just mildly skeptical of vaccines and mask wearing, or mask rules, and so by, but when you're told you have to do it, then it's like, well, then I really don't want to do it. But then it's like, what, you get, you're supposed to use reverse psychology? Even if you don't give a hoot about the more than 250 million chickens in the U.S. alone each year that live their entire existence in an A4 paper-sized cage, that's a 8.5 by 11, a brief look at the news emphasizes that reducing our meat consumption is an essential goal for the world's growing population. Even if it plateaus in 10, 20 years, it's still growing. Uh, Three-quarters of rainforest loss is driven by animal agriculture. The vast quantities of processed meat we eat are making us fat and sick. And zoonotic diseases, like COVID, are likely to become more common. Well, as they have become, I mean, COVID-19 occurred as a zoonotic disease. If we were, did not have so much crazy meat consumption, we would have less of that, or it wouldn't exist at all. It was more likely to become more common if agriculture continues on its current industrialized path. Tackling the meat paradox will be a necessary step towards cutting down our meat consumption, and Gaindridge intends to undertake more research into better defining the paradox and our reactions to it. But given the intense reactions she has documented in her review, how have people responded to her own paper? Well, the response, I suppose, has been a bit meta in some ways, in a sense that obviously we are talking about the meat paradox. And then we, when we talk about the review, you actually see the strategies themselves coming out. Some people, sadly, just by talking about the paradox, may actually be responding with the various strategies that we're talking about because the article itself acts as a trigger of cognitive dissonance. And that's how it ends. So not exactly a, you know, Slam dunk, this is, you know, how we, great wisdom here. But it's a starting point. Let's continue with something related to not quite the meat paradox, but the disassociation that meat products are, in fact, made of animals. 
Sort of like the Lisa Simpson episode of Lisa becoming a vegetarian, where as soon as she realizes that all it meat is animals, she can't stop picturing the meat on her plate as animals. Don't eat us, Lisa. Yeah, I can't do the impression, but you, you know what I'm talking about, Simpson Heads, right? 90s kids. So anyway, uh, what's the site? IFLS. Oh, no. I wish I knew what this was called. Hmm. Well, it's an acronym. It's a science blog. Really, um, you know, quick story here. Pop, pop science here. Here is the headline. The quick, you know, some pop, pop, pop science stories. Science reporting. 40% of American kids think hot dogs and bacon are plants. Wild, right? So, where is this coming from? Uh, this is written by James Felton. And uh, let's see. A new study has found that a significant percentage of four to seven-year-old children, so these are, in fact, very, you know, a pre-age of reason children, from the United States believe hot dogs, hamburgers, and bacon come from plants. Published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, a team of psychologists asked children to categorize a range of foods, including cheese, french fries, bacon, popcorn, shrimp, almonds, and egg. <laughs> Not eggs, just egg. <laughs> The responses threw up a number of surprises, including that almost half of them, half of the uh, it's 176 uh, kids, believe that French fries came from animals. Cheese was commonly misidentified as plant-based, with 44% incorrectly identifying that. 41% believe bacon to come from a plant, we wish, and 40% said the same of hot dogs. Even chicken nuggets, which famously have chicken in their name, were misidentified as coming from plants. Uh, about over a third, that's 38% of the time. Popcorn and almonds were also commonly misclassed as animal-based, each by more than 30% of children, the team write in their report. So as well as assessing the children's knowledge of the origins of food, the team looked at what animals and plants the kids believed could and couldn't be eaten. It appears that there's a lot of confusion about what is and isn't edible, with the majority believing that cows, pigs, and chicken are inedible. And the percentages were 77%, 73%, and 65%. All over half of these kids. And they, where were they from, though? These details are not given, unfortunately. That's the problem with pop science. They're not giving all those little juicy details of, like, where is this? Is this a city? You know, oh, if they were on the farm. They know exactly where. They'd see the, the, them slaughtered right in front of them. Very true. These are likely urban kids. But they didn't think they were edible. Sand was considered edible by 1%. Five times... Oh, maybe they ate some sand at, uh, during um, recess. Uh, five times less than the amount who believed cat to be a type of food. The study shows that there are a lot of misconceptions about food at this early age. But the team believes it could be an opportunity. Again, while they're young. Whatever. So most children in the U.S. eat animal products, but unlike adults who have built up an arsenal of strategies... Oh, we just talked about those. ...to justify the consumption of animals... Children appear to be naive. Well, duh. But the team wrote in their discussion, the current study suggests that children eat meat unknowingly and perhaps in violation of a bias against animals as a food source. Childhood may therefore represent a unique opportunity, window of opportunity, during which lifelong plant-based diets can be more easily established compared to later. Hmm. So it's like a generational shift will be able to occur. That's why some schools are starting meatless Mondays. Why not the whole menu? 
why not just meatless uh, meat Fridays or something? But it's like, but then it becomes like, well, why meat just one day? Why not just cut it all out then? It's like it's oh, we have to have meat. Why uh, the big question, right? Like, why only one day? Because it's so normal, natural, and necessary to have meat the rest of the menu, uh, the days. So rather than manage the inconvenience of cooking several meal options or confront the emotions that may come with the relevation that the bacon on the child's plate was once a living, breathing pig, some parents instead skirt the truth altogether through vague terminology that has potentially lasting impacts on children's eating habits. By being more open about the source of foods, meaning telling kids how, literally, how the sausage was made, and providing more meat alternatives, the team believes children may gravitate towards plant-based foods or plants themselves, of course. At the family level, youth climate activism may begin at the dinner table, the team writes. By reframing from eating foods that violate their beliefs about the well-being of animals, children would also be acting in a manner consistent with their moral views of the environment. In addition to reducing their own carbon footprints, children's principled eating behaviors may also influence those of their parents. Yeah, at least the vegetarian. That was back in the 90s, right? Late 90s. But that was when it was really freaky. But it was something that existed. Now it's, it's, it's I think it's, you know, it's, it's moving away from the fringe, especially as it's, well, it's the four ends. It's more necessary to move away from meat-based diets or meat-centric meals. I wanted to say something on the aside about the term carbon footprint or ecological footprint. Actually, did it, yeah, they use carbon footprint. So something that uh, climate deniers do a lot of, climate skeptics, or they, uh, they have a, people who are pro-choice in, uh, in how we tackle environmental issues. And something that happens a lot that I see that isn't get, doesn't get corrected that well uh, or that often is, well, first, first, let's start with the first line of thinking that the, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that it's, it's oil, fossil fuel companies, PR firms, just like how they changed global warming, which apparently actually stressed people out more. I don't know how it didn't. I thought the point was people thought global warming, oh, warmer weather. I hate when it's cold. So we changed it to this movement or activist took on climate change because it accurately reflects what's happening. It's changing the climate. And you can therefore also use the phrase, like I do, climate chaos. It is chaotic. The way the weather is constantly changing, the way the ice caps are melting, the way it's going to be really cold and then droughts and cold and then droughts, you know, and then forest fires all year round. It's the West hasn't gotten any freaking rain this winter at all. So this means another summer of just nothing but fires is coming again and again. And, you know, so so just, just to go about that. So climate chaos is, you know, the phrase I use, but also carbon footprints was also something created by fossil fuel companies. Now, when I first used or encountered carbon footprints, it was an architecture school. And we only used like the footprint phrase or terminology when talking about whole cities. We weren't really talking about our individual personal carbon footprint because from the get-go at that stage in my personal development, I was not thinking about environmental issues as individual problems solved by individual consumer choices. You know, oh, you got to focus on your carbon footprint. Of course, 
because the footprint of a person is nothing compared to the footprint of a company or an industry or building. Because we were in architecture school talking about buildings. So when we were talking about footprints, we were talking about the footprint of a building. Because it's not the people who are have the footprint. It's what people use. It's what people do that has the footprint. Not only a carbon footprint, just talking about carbon dioxide. But it's not just carbon dioxide. That is a greenhouse gas and that bakes the planet. There's all the other greenhouse gases. That's why we're talking about fracking. And they say, oh, the carbon footprint is lower when using natural gas, but the methane emissions are higher and methane is worse for the planet because it's eight times more dense and thus creates eight times more warming, speeding up the making Earth into Venus. So that, yeah, it's worse. Fracking is worse, actually, than coal. And it doesn't help the burn trees, you know, making it biomass or whatever, unless it's waste. But you, there's just not enough plant waste to burn to basically, you know, heat and power everything, which was kind of what the point of Planet of the Humans was making, even though it was very inelegant most of the time, because it also doesn't, doesn't reduce that, uh, that, you know, carbon footprint as a personal consumer thing that people have to focus on and not something that's like cities have a carbon footprint, which is based on car culture, Right. So it's more of a social issue to be solved with politics, not a consumer issue to be solved with trying to resolve cognitive dissonance. Though, obviously, these levels interact and they aren't these; their connections are not to be ignored. So I want to address that. Before continuing with... Next is kind of an intersection with the student organizing, because it has to do with students. But this is from a site called The Vegan Society. One world, many lives, our choice. That's their tagline. The headline is, Vegan student forced to study unit on farming or fail wins case against college. Now, so it's not just, you know, what? what? This is, is, is this cancel culture run amok? Is this like uh, students taking over its student revolution? Yeah. <laughs> Let's dig in. So this was, from last spring, Monday, April 12th, last year, 2021. An 18-year-old vegan college student has won a case against her college following support from the Vegan Society after she was told she had to take a module on farming or fail the course. But this module was about animal farming. So Fiji Willis from Down End, Bristol, is currently studying for her BTEC National Extended Diploma in Animal Management which was advertised in the college prospects as being great for people who love animals. You know, because you can raise animals as part of an ecology and you're not raising them to slaughter or to use as food sources. Or you're using them as a manure, source of manure and, and all sorts of other things. They also eat the bugs, so they're bug control too. Sheep, uh, there's certainly an argument about like, uh, maybe it's more kooky to say that it's, it's harmful to shear sheep wool. Obviously, the natural thing is that they shed their wool themselves. But I think the point is that they do that anyway. So why not shear it off at once? It does not actually torture the sheep to shear their wool off. Um, it's the same as getting a haircut. But that's an argument to be made among sheep herders, not something I can weigh on without knowing more. Except that I wrangled some sheep a few times, but... Uh, 
nothing more than just helping a sheepdog out. So, however, after enrolling, Fiji discovered she had to take and pass a module on farm husbandry, the branch of agriculture that focuses on raising animals for meat, fiber, milk, eggs, and other products. Though, like, true vegan style is also to reject fibers, meaning using wool and hair. It includes day-to-day care, selective breeding, and the raising of livestock for the purpose of gaining the best quality meats and most milk and eggs from those animals. Students were also expected to attend working farms to help the farmers while a visit to a slaughterhouse was also discussed. Disgust or disgusting? Fiji, who has been vegan for four years, started suffering with anxiety and during National Mental Health Week brought up her concerns about the course with her tutor, but was told she would not be given the opportunity to study an alternative module and that skipping the unit would result in an automatic fail. Alternatively, she was told to leave the college or enroll on another course. Don't like it? Go somewhere else. Now, is this just a case of someone being a snowflake? I would disagree. Because after all, look, look. If Basically, it's like, this is, look, a college, going to school, is quite a bit more of an investment than going to a restaurant and finding they don't have a vegan option. If it, But, you know, if... And maybe it's something more like um, she should have gone, you know, looked at things uh, beforehand, you know, what all the modules were. I don't know the situation with this. Let's see, put it forward that, you know, she, she started the program because it was great for people who love animals. Well, obviously, if you, but that mean, that's under the rubric of having cognitive dissonance. You love animals and you love eating them. Well, there's nothing wrong with raising them to be eaten. So anyway. Alternatively, she was told, okay, yeah, so unsure whether it would affect her chances of being accepted in the university at the end of the year, PG reached out to Jeanette Rowley, vegan rights advocate at the Vegan Society, which is the site. You know, obviously they're tooting their own horn here. Together, they submitted a formal complaint to the college, which responded stating it was unable to remove Unit 19, Farm Livestock Husbandry, from the curriculum or substitute it with another unit. Following this, a similar complaint was issued to the education and skills. Now, of course, if it was a matter of, like, we can't do it yet, but next time, like next year, or, like, now that this concern has been arisen, we'll make an effort to address it by having an alternative unit. But they're not saying that. They're just saying we can't. Can't, won't, can't afford it. Like, what? Come on. Following this, a similar complaint was issued to the Education and Skills Funding Agency who also disagreed with the discrimination claims. You know, because being vegan isn't like a, it's a life choice, you see. It's not a identity uh, to be protected under the Constitution or it's not a protected class, you know, like, hmm, hmm. But obviously you shouldn't have to win a, say, I'm being discriminated against to make a to make the argument that there should be more choice, that the diversity of lifestyle slash preference on moral grounds should be accommodated. It's it's, it's interesting. You can discriminate religiously, and, and then you have a case like if it was discrimination based on religion, and that is pretty much a, also culture lifestyle. Whatever veganism could be, because I noticed like the other, the other article actually referenced you know converting to you know veganism as if it were a religion. <laughs> I'm not calling it that. No way. 
Anyway. The case was escalated to the awarding body for noncompliance with equality law, which intervened, and the college has now, five months after the start of Fiji's claim, agreed to provide a more suitable module for her, and thus any future vegan coming through. Or vegetarian as well. Fiji said, I could simply break my way of uh, living purely to pass a course. I am vegan because I love animals, and so to go against my beliefs and attend a farm where I would be supporting a farmer would be wrong. Without Jeanette's help, I would have been denied a college education. I just hope I can now be an example to other vegans so they don't have to go through the ordeal I went through. Commenting on the case, Jeanette said, This was not only a really big win for Fiji, but for the vegan movement in general. Vegans in the UK have the protection of human rights and equality law, and it is vital that schools and colleges understand that they are under a statutory duty to examine how their educational policy and practice might have a negative impact on vegan, or other types of students. They must do everything they can to remove any observed disadvantages that could be faced by groups like vegans. This is in the UK, obviously a place without the freedom of American uh, constitution and so on and so on. We, We don't, do we have such a thing as equality law? We have to keep passing little things piecemeal. That way you do have to rely on really, you know, vague discrimination kind of cases that go up to the Supreme Court every few weeks. I'm delighted Fiji was able to stay at her college and was able to continue working towards her diploma. In addition to veganism in the UK being protected under human rights and equality law, education providers are under a legal duty to be inclusive and aim for a critical, plural, and objective teaching and learning environment. To create an inclusive environment for vegans in education, there is an urgent need to assess the approach taken to teaching students about non-human animals and the way they are treated. So there you go. From the Vegan Society. A, I assume, non-profit supporting vegans in the UK. I think we, the Humane, not the Humane Society. Maybe the Humane Society. I don't know who would be the um, equivalent in America. But okay, limited time, but obviously I can go over the break. Now, from the Institute for Social Ecology, love social ecology, that's my bag, that's my politics, social ecology. Now, this is more of an essay, not so much an article. So let's see if I can, um, I don't want to read too fast, because this is a denser one, but it's about, so this this is no longer fluffy news, but this is a hard, more of a, now I've built up to a hard, booky, bookish uh, essay about animal rights themselves and their ambiguities. The title is Ambiguities of Animal Rights, written by, I'll list it, it's probably at the bottom. I know it is. So, starting now. Throughout Europe and North America, a considerable portion of the contemporary radical scene takes for granted the notion that animal liberation is an integral part of revolutionary politics. Many talented and dedicated activists and anti-capitalist and anti-authoritarian movements have come to political maturity in the context of animal rights campaigns. And in some circles, veganism and animal liberation are considered the apogee of oppositional authenticity. This reminds me of my um, cousin of mine. In order to contest these views and critically examine the philosophical and political presuppositions that underlie them, it is not necessary to defend or condone the exploitation of non-human animals in factory farms, cosmetic laboratories, and elsewhere. Much of the current industrialized manufacture of animal products is socially worthless and ecologically disastrous. 
as is to be expected in an economy organized around commodification and profit. Nor does the critique of animal rights entail the wholesale rejection of personal convictions or lifestyle choices. There are a number of legitimate reasons to abstain from eating meat or to oppose cruelty to animals. So, to start, basically saying that we don't have to rely on these, you know, animals should have rights or animals have rights or animals are this or that or, or what have you. There's just so many other reasons. You know, I move toward veganism and vegetarianism for ecological reasons, for the climate, for the, for the headlines that say if you just cut out beef and not just yourself, it has to be a society-wide thing. We'd use half the farmland we use now. That's, that's amazing. It would be so easy. We just have to basically outlaw meat, uh, sorry, uh, beef, cow, cow raising. Imagine it. Obviously, it wouldn't go away completely. There'd be black market cow raising on the side or whatever, you know, in the hills and whatever. But but it would be so much less. It would so be less. You know, it's just there's the whole it limits, you know, it limits it to the, the hardcore, the old, the people can't let go. But, you know, you stop serving beef to kids and then they wouldn't know the difference. They wouldn't care. And, you know, I don't really care. And, yeah, because I started when I was in college. My brain was just, you know, finishing up its uh, maturing. So, like, it's not, it was, wasn't hardwired completely yet. But it was, you know, past most, most stages, you know, age 20. But, you know, I, I eat beef basically five times a year at most. And it's usually not like I'm, not seek, I'm never seeking it out. It's usually something that, like, it's like a very rare thing. I had this rule where, like, I would only have one burger a year, and I don't even think I followed that. I didn't. I don't think I had a burger last year, and I don't know if I had one the year before. But I basically, like, I'm not even splurging on a burger somewhere. Like, I don't even need it anymore. So that I could do the same thing with other types of foods and other meat products, where let's say, uh, let's say bacon. I just never you know just i don't i don't buy bacon myself i don't like you know pick it up when it's at like a breakfast buffet or something i don't order it when you know special breakfast with a waffle you know just get bacon on the side just just don't get it and or or i get it once a year and that's basically it and i'll do that a few years and eventually i'll just forget and i'll go like a whole year without bacon or because so many diners and stuff have a vegan or vegetarian, you know, fake meat option, I'll just get the vegan bacon. <laughs> Even though it's not really the same. You want that fattiness to go with whatever bread product you're, you know. But but then of course I'm I'm just eating too many carbs. Anyway, that's 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 my own thing. So we're just going ahead here. Still in the intro, really. This essay explores some of the illegitimate reasons for doing so. Such as undertaking of such an undertaking is fraught with difficulty, not least of which is the strained sense of incredulity and indignation that critiques of animal rights almost always arouse. The topic leads into tricky terrain, both ethically and politically, in part because it directly impinges on dietary predilections, a matter that is at once profoundly private and inescapably public. Although animal rights involves much more than vegetarianism or veganism, it does tend to exasperate the seemingly inherent self-righteousness of food politics, where puritanism is often mistaken for radicalism. So keep in mind, so this essay is actually arguing against animal rights, but it replaces a different rubric that is, I believe, better. 
is basically making taking things in an ecological approach. It's not just about assigning rights to certain things and people piecemeal. It's about looking at the totality of existence and actually basing a political framework on that. It is nonetheless essential to face such misgivings squarely. In the hope of provoking a more thoughtful debate on the merits of animal rights, I view animal rights thinking as a separate kind of moral mistake and a symptom of a political confusion. Much like its ideological cousin, pacifism, the political and moral theory of animal rights offers simple but false answers to important ethical questions. At the risk of collapsing competing versions of animal rights theory into one monolithic category, I would like to consider several of these questions from a social ecological perspective in order to show why much of this, much of that ideology of animal rights is both anti-humanist and anti-ecological and why its reasoning is frequently at odds with the project of creating such a free world. So this essay could also double, you know, to other types of conversations. Let's say instead of animal rights, we're talking about trans rights or gender rights or gender theory and how people on the left, and I've discussed in left-wing culture war episodes, the um, competing issues of like women's rights, women's gender-based rights, is co complete political confusion, to use the phrase from this paragraph. But they say tr saying trans rights is political confusion and um, a moral mistake. Maybe there's some other type of framework that we could use to get beyond those things these things but let's not compare apples and bacon continuing on in the next paragraph as an attempt to extend traditional ethical frameworks to non-human nature animal rights is simultaneously much too ambitious and much too timid it fundamentally misconstrues what is distinctive about humans and our relation to the natural world as well as to the realm of moral action and at the same time treats higher animals anthropomorphically meaning treating them as people while completely ignoring the vast majority of creatures that make this planet planet what it is. But the problem of animal rights thinking goes deeper still. The very project of simply extending existing moral systems, rather than radically transforming them, is flawed. I think I've discussed this in other types of, in a similar way, probably from a similar social ecology site where, you know, one of social ecology's main pillars of, of its worldview is that that man's relationship to nature and the domination hierarchical relationship underpins all other types of human uh, oppression. Many animal rights theorists readily acknowledge that mainstream Western traditions of ethical thought are unsatisfactory, but they focus their criticisms on traditional morality supposed human-centeredness, human also known as anth anthrocentrism. This is unconvincing. The primary problem with the mainstream Western tradition is not that it promotes anthrocentric ethics, you know, human-centered, but that it promotes bourgeois ethics, that of owners, capitalists. Ah, turn it around. It's not enough to just be vegan. Got to be anti-capitalist, at least, or you know, more than just anti-corporate. So the basic categories of academic moral philosophy are steeped in capitalist values, from the notion of interests to the notion of contract, the standard analysis of moral standing, you know, from you know, capitalist courts, it replicates exchange relations and the individualist conception of moral agents. It obscures the social context 
that produce and sustain agency or hinder it. Yet these categories are the same ones that animal rights theorists ask us to apply to those creatures, some of them anyway, that have typically been neglected by moral philosophy. In this way, animal liberation doctrine perpetuates and reinforces the liberal assumptions that are hegemonic within contemporary capitalist culture, oh, under the guise of contesting it. Indeed, one of the chief reasons for the popularity of animal rights within radical circles is that it appears to offer an extreme affront to the status quo while actually recuperating from its foundation, which is something you see in a lot of different politics, a lot of, a lot of different political spaces, which usually leads to dementriest politics or reformism of you know, some various kinds. Relying on a dubious analogy to institutionalized forms of social domination and hierarchy, animal rights advocates argue that drawing an ethically significant distinction between human beings and non-human animals is a form of speciesism. A mere prejudice that illegitimately privileges members of one's own species over members of another. According to this theory, animals that display a certain level of relative uh, physiological and psychological complexity usually vertebrates, that is, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals, have the same basic moral status as humans. The central nervous system is, at the bottom, what confers moral consider considerability. In some versions of the theory, only creatures with the capacity to experience pain have any moral status whatsoever. These animals are often designated as sentient. Thus, on the animal rights view, to draw a line between human beings and other sentient creatures is arbitrary and unwarranted. In the same way that classical racism and sexism unjustly deemed women and people of color to be undeserving of a moral equality. The next logical step in expanding the circle of ethical concern is to overcome speciesism and grant equal consideration of interests to sentient beings. That's the platform. That's the position. Seems great, right? And for the most part, it's a good start. That's kind of the point. Like you start here because that's like kind of where it's, it clicks with how like capitalist philosophy works like the, you know, it's, it's liberal, it's in keeping with liberal values. It's about expanding them, right? Not transforming. But as a you know, radical revolutionary politics goes, you want to transform. You don't want to just build on what is pretty rotten because it's a foundation that created the situation in the first place by saying, by drawing these distinctions of rights and whatever. As that one paragraph pointed out, it uses all this language of the marketplace. So these arguments are selective, but spurious. The central analogy to the civil rights movement and women's and is trivializing and ahistorical. Both of those social movements were initiated and driven by members of the dispossessed and excluded groups themselves, not by benevolent men and white people acting on their behalf. Both movements were built precisely around the idea of reclaiming and reasserting a shared humanity in the face of a society that had derived them or denied it. No civil rights activist or feminist ever argued, we're sentient beings too. No, they argued, we're fully human too. Animal liberation doctrine, far from exceeding this humanist impulse, kind of undermines that. Moreover, the animal rights stance forgets a crucial fact about ethical action. There is indeed a critically important distinction. Okay, I'll stop with that paragraph. I'll reread that. So we're coming on to the first end of the first hour. You've been listening to the Three Left Show. I'm your voice, um, <laughs> talking voice, Dan Platt, attached to a head, and um, covering vegan issues at the moment. I will continue this on the other side of the break. 
show that was um changes by a mod wheel moon back to the essay i've been sitting on this one a while actually because i was kind of like puzzling on like how to use this how what to do with it um because it's such a such a dense one anything that kind of actually like kind of explains like the deeper like disagreement between radicals so back to where I left off about explaining that animal rights is kind of based on a foundation of bourgeois values, you know, so on. Um, but there, there's a, this is not just poo-pooing, you know, all animal rights activism. This is about undermining it. It's actually about kind of strengthening it by moving away from the values that create, you know, the, the capitalist system that exploits animals and humans and everybody and everything. Okay, so let's see. Moreover, an animal rights stance forgets a crucial fact about ethical action. There is indeed a critical important distinction between moral agents, meaning beings who can engage in ethical deliberation, entertain alternative moral choices, and act according to their best judgment, and all other morally considerable beings. Moral agents are uniquely capable of formulating, articulating, defending a conception of their own interest, no other morally considerable beings are capable of this. In order for their interest to be taken into account in ethical deliberation, these interests must be imputed and interpreted by some moral agent. As far as we know, mentally competent adult human beings are the only ones that can do that. Or the only moral agents. So this is like kind of this is also kind of a crash course in uh, ethical philosophy of ethics. So this decisive distinction is fundamental to ethics itself. To act ethically means, uh, among other things, to respect the principle that persuasion and consent are preferable to coercion and manipulation. This principle cannot be directly applied to human interactions with animals. Animals cannot be persuaded and cannot give consent. In order to accord proper consideration to an animal's well-being, moral agents must make some determination of what their animal's interests are. This is not only unnecessary in the case of other moral agents, it's morally prohibited under normal conditions. So to grab the significance of this difference, consider the following. I live with several people and a number of cats, toward whom I have various ethical responsibilities. If I am convinced that one of my human housemates needs to take some kind of medicine, it is not acceptable for me to force feed it to her, assuming she's 
not isn't deranged. Instead, I can try to persuade her through rational deliberation, ethical argument, and that it would be best if she took the medicine. But if I think that one of the cats needs to take some kind of medicine, I may as well have no choice but to force feed it to him or trick him into eating it. In other words, taking the interests of animals seriously and treating them as morally conservable beings requires a different sort of ethical action from the sort that is typically appropriate with other people. The failure to account for this salient feature of moral conduct is one reason why so many proponents of animal rights are actually also are hostile to humanist values. But an equally serious failing of animal rights thinking is its obliviousness to ecological values. Because it's using capitalist values to make arguments for animal rights or animal welfare, not uh, ecological values or socialist values or revolutionary radical values. How you argue for things matters. Recall that on the animal rights view, it is only individual creatures endowed with sentience that deserve moral consideration. So trees, plants, lakes, rivers, forests, ecosystems, and even more, most creatures that zoologists classify as animals have no interests, well-being, or worth of their own, except in so much as they promote the interests of sentient beings. Animal rights advocates have simply traded in speciesism for phylumism. You know, having a bias against uh, for your own phylum of creature, vertebrates. But this is, of course, this is not like what animal rights advocates do. They're not arguing against the rights, but they're actually saying that, oh, trees also need rights then. And that's, and then you get more and more. It's like, it's a slippery slope, though I'm not calling, I'm not, I, I wish there, let's see, what's a different phrase than slippery slope fallacy. That's the fallacy that like things will get more ridiculous. But it's like if you have to like if we want to protect trees, we have to argue for trees' rights. That's or or the rights of Gaia or the Earth itself. Now, certain constitutions are giving rights to the environment, which is kind of how it's being done. But these are still constitutions that are not so much revolutionary; they're reformist. Why is this wrong? Why is it wrong to just say we're going, we're giving human rights to everything else? Because that's the only way we can protect them. But the point is that human rights, as they're used in our jurisprudence, are limiting. The fact that we have to keep applying it to all these things that aren't humans, despite the actual ethical differences that exist the actual you know just just as conservatives say oh well, there actually are differences between men and women so this whole like equal uh rights for women thing is actually really really ridiculous and makes no sense it makes it open to that kind of ridicule but it's not about just open to ridicule from the dumb uh or the confused but it's also like well you actually want to argue in a way that really you can't get around you can't you, you can't just cognitive dissonance your way out of, or, or uh, you know, to, to get around the cognitive dissonance. That isn't about blaming to say it's wrong. It's against people's rights. That's just my musing about it. Why, why would we care about this essay? To focus on the interests of singular animals and a small minority of sentient ones at that, and to posit a general duty not to harm these interests or cause suffering is to miss this ecological dimension entirely. Conflicting interests are part of what accounts for the magnificent variety and complexity of the natural world. 
The notion of granting equal consideration to all such interests is incoherent in evolutionary as well as ecological terms. This would remain the case even in a completely vegetarian society uh, promote, uh, populated solely by organic subsistence farmers. Food cultivation of any sort means the systemic depredation of habitat and subsistence of some animals requires a continuous frustration of their interests. Extending the individual rights paradigm to sending animals simply obscures fundamental facets of terrestrial existence. Animal rights thus degrades rather than develops the humanist impulse embodied in liberatory social movements. And its basic philosophical thrust is directly contrary to the project of elaborating uh, an ecological ethics. So this kind of development, this kind of, this argument here, is also, also kind of getting the heart of why, like, maybe those with new age cultural values actually make terrible leftists or organizers or political actors. Because they're using a basis of values and views and how they and do things that's totally individualist and, and capitalist and and actually aligns with the status quo or or why why you can you can ha you can pound your head for animal rights and not pass a single law or, or you pass some laws based on these moral considerations and but it's not structural so its basic philosophical thrust is directly contrary to the project of elaborating an ecological ethics. So as a moral theory, it leaves much to be desired. But what of its political affiliations and its practical implication? So here as well, skepticism is in order. All fa factions in the animal rights camp appear to have a profound faith in the revolutionary potential of purchasing decisions and consumer choice. If enough people stop buying meat, factory farms will go out of business. This commitment to consumer politics is a classically voluntarist approach to social change, which further highlights animal liberation's debt to liberalism. It also reveals an elementary misunderstanding of the structure of capitalist ec economies. Even within the narrow confines of ethical shopping, however, an animal rights perspective frequently confuses relevant issues. Instead of investigating the social and ecological conditions under which bananas and coffee, for example, reach shopping carts and kitchen tables in Seattle and Stockholm, the myopic focus on sentience asks us to cast a suspicious eye on locally raised free-range poultry. This regressive shift from the political economy of food production to the pains of consciousness of individual consumption is testimony to the underlying class bias and cultural insularity that runs through much of the animal rights tendency. Animal rights takes the range of nutritional choices typical of a narrow socioeconomic stratum, middle class, and elevates it to a universal virtue, while stigmatizing the sources of protein commonly available to the economically deprived, rural or working class families and peasants in the global south. You know, they're only eating, you know, a few chickens a year, but, you know, if, if you're going to say all chicken eating is bad, then they're like, they're less ethical than you are. So the unexamined cultural prejudice embedded deep. Now, by the way, when I read stuff like this, it's not like I'm taking it as dogma itself. I'm not saying like this is completely right, and I agree with everything in here. I'm reading it as almost from, a, uh, hopefully from a neutral voice. I think it's making good points. It's something to consider and integrate while doing whatever you're doing. Because it's more exploring the conflicts that exist in this issues. 
So there's also an unexamined cultural prejudice embedded deep within animal rights thinking that carries political implications that unavoidably are also elitist. Consistent animal rights stance, after all, would require many aboriginal peoples to abandon their sustainable livelihoods and life ways completely. Animal rights has no reasonable alternative to offer to communities like the Inuit, whose very existence on their ecological niche is predicated on hunting animals. An animal rights viewpoint can only look down disdainfully on those peasant societies in Latin America. Now, of course, I can push back on this and like, he's kind of, is, is this not a straw man? I'm pretty sure most animal rights advocates, vegans, they're not saying, they're, they'll make exceptions. But the argument this essay is trying to make is, if you have to have all these exceptions to your moral philosophy, then maybe your moral philosophy isn't quite as comprehensive as it should be. Maybe we need something that can actually further explain why industrial mass animal farming is bad, but um, raising some cows in a field, you know, in an enclosed field, in a permaculture farm is good. But it's usually, you know, usually you get the nuances from you know, most vegans that say, like, look, you know, it's uh, if you if you're able to hunt, you know, and, and and kill and skin the deer yourself, you've earned that meat. But if you just want to shovel what corporations you're gonna like, you know, put on the shelf in front of you, then you know that's, you know, that then you're a, a chump. You know, there's there, there, there's a graduation there. You know, it's not just I think it's a straw. Like maybe is, this is using a straw man. That's this Puritan dogmatic vegan but they're out there at least online but again any any anyone who's just posting online is is a parody and a of a real activist forsaking such practices makes no ecological or social sense it would be tantamount to eliminating these distinctive societies themselves all for the sake of assimilation to standards of morality and nutrition propounded by middle-class westerners convinced of their own recititude too many animal rights proponents forget that their belief system is essentially in a European-derived construct. Neglect the practical repercussions of universalizing it. So let's see, let's see if I can skip ahead, because obviously he's repeating several points. Yeah, he, you know, he, 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 he does some Godwin's Law and points out that, like, oh, animal rights, you know, Hitler loved animals. And, uh, and they actually, you know, it speaks of his vegetarianism, pro-animal predictions of the Nazis... Contemporary animal liberation activists would certainly do well to acquaint themselves with this ominous record of past and present collusion by animal advocates with fascists. The point of reviewing these facts is not to suggest a necessary or inevitable connection between animal rights and fascism, but the historical pattern is kind of hard to mistake and demands an explanation. It can't just be, you know, hand-waved, which is kind of what usually happens in public discussions of this. What helps to account for this consistent intersection of apparently contrary worldviews is a common preoccupation of purity, the presumption that true virtue requires repudiating obsessively unclean practices such as meat-eating furnishes much of the heartfelt vehemence behind animal rights discourse. When disconnected from an articulated critical social perspective and a comprehensive ecological sensibility, these obsessionist version of Puritan politics can easily slide into a distorted version or vision of an ethical, sexual, or ideological purity. So that was a lot of word salad to basically just say um, dog, dogmatism bad. And uh, kind of what's kind of behind a lot of the venomous discourse in most political, social, whatever, discuss, personal discussions is 
some preoccupation with purity. Like, to me, there's a purity in abstaining, like, in the same way that vegans, you know, might get uh, puritan, puritan, puritan when abstaining from eat uh, animal products and meat eating. I think there's uh, maybe a post-leftist or anarchist purity about not organizing or not organizing with some authority. If it's an anarchist, no authority, right? No, no gods, no masters, but no authority whatsoever. No committee, no elected official, no, no elected body, no representation. You know, you get real pure about it and it makes it impossible to organize. I'm going to do that on another show, but I read an article that basically was like, uh, a follow-up on something I reviewed in a previous show, a place called the Marxist Center, which has basically devolved and ended. It was just a five-year project, which was like the beginning of trying to create those Marxist organizations in every city that I talked about in the last episode to create revolution. And they were working on that. But what they found was you had all these other groups that were mutual aid, doing mutual aid work or, or whatever. And, and the end of it was they didn't want advice from this other bigger group that was like that started the project. They're like, don't tell us what to do. <laughs> we're not, we don't actually want to be, oh, oh, wait, 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 hold on. You actually want to be organized? This is too heavy for us. We just want to be a confederation where we're members, but we're not really members. I'll have to go into it another time. It was a juicy example of what I'm talking about here and what I'll talk about whenever I complain about my fellow comrades or potential comrades, rather, because really I don't see comrades in those that don't want to actually join up with anything or they want to be like really loose. Like we still have to be really autonomous, autonomous of everything, even other leftists. (laughs) Because if we were, then there might be some hierarchy that develops because somebody has more experience or holds a bank account or is responsible for something, God willing. So a closely related trope is the recurrent insistence within animal rights thinking on a unitary approach to moral questions. You know, just dogmatism, black and white, rightly rejecting the inherent dualism of humanity and non-human nature, right? Animal rights philosophers wrongly collapse the two into one. So, you know, it just continues with problems of uh, black and white moral thinking, which is kind of what he's saying of just the general philosophy of animal rights, not that all animal rights activism falls into this. At least I'm not saying it does. I don't see it always, but it's there. There's a potential for it. Rather than positing a static, one-dimensional moral landscape populated by humans and animals facing one another on equal terms, those drawn to animal rights ought to consider a more complex alternative, a variated, ethical viewpoint that encompasses a social dimension and an ecological one, without conflating the two. Such an approach recognizes the crucial continuity between humankind and the rest of the natural world while respecting the ethical significance. uh, Yes, significant distinctions that mark this continuum. Incorporating a dialectical view, magic word, of natural processes and entities, meaning they rely on each other, they go back and forth. This alternative perspective comprehends the breathtaking abundance, sophistication, and diversity of life and its forms and living communities on the earth as an occasion for all 
and as valuable in, them, in themselves. You don't have to use bourgeois values. Or like the Strong Towns website does, where even in the most mundane articles, where they're talking about like how this is good, like this uh, urbanist policy is safer and it's beautiful and it's good. It's like it also makes money. It's also financially healthy. <laughs> they have to plug it in every article. Okay, that's another thing. You don't know what I'm talking about if you're a new listener, but in a past episode or two, I've read something from Strong Towns, and there's just always like, you can also make money by uh, doing the right thing. Uh, and it always it's real cringe to me when I was like, oh, of course you have to make money. You have to make money in a marketplace. You, know, you have to make money to make rent. You know? It's like, come on. You can do things for the sake of doing good things. None of these ethical potentialities can be realized, however, as long as we continue to replicate social institutions built around domination and hierarchy. Overcoming those structures will require revolutionary transformation, ethically as well as politically. This momentous historical goal can only be reached by a movement that reclaims, not rejects, uniquely human capacity for freedom. In their present form, the philosophy and politics of animal rights isn't really part of this. Uh, but I skipped the paragraph. An ecologically and socially credible effort to take animal interests seriously will dispense with the notion that killing and harm are wrong and will surmount the dichotomy of sentient versus non-sentient beings by integrating a concern for animal welfare into an inclusive appreciation for the well-being of whole ecological communities. All right, so it's not about the animals themselves, but their place in it. And of course, if their place means that uh, they shouldn't be mass slaughtered, you know, that they align. In practice, this would likely result in a revival and refinement of the custom of humane treatment of animals, accompanied by the insight that cultivating humanist values is a component of, rather than a hindrance to, this endeavor. People will not consistently treat animals humanely until people, all people, are treated humanely. Black Lives Matter. So this can also, like, this kind of... It, feels like how turfs argue about women's rights to say like trans activists concentrate on their rights to the detriment of others because they're focused on their rights in this bourgeois framework of what it means to have rights to be equal. Well, also because they say that they're arguing from humanist values while what are trans advocates arguing from? See, where my confusion comes in is where, like, well, I think they're both arguing from the same place. How do you come to such opposite conclusions? Basically, it comes down to what I've read is the other, one side says the other is doing, doing it wrong. They're doing humanism wrong. And how are they doing it wrong? Oh, they're, they're using bourgeois values and not humanist values. But God, I've got another paradox for you. Humanist values... Also kind of Western developed. <laughs> I don't know if you can get around that. So you have to break with it. And that's usually why people adopt Eastern philosophies, though. I don't know if how revolutionary can you go with Taoism. I know that Buddhism usually doesn't. I'm with a revolutionary Buddhist. I don't think they're, they're not usually synonymous with revolutionaries. They're usually reactionaries. So I have... A few more. I have an article from the post-leftist at Crime Think 
about how the farmers of India basically beat the government, basically through mass protests and basically shutting down the capital. They surrounded the capital. It really, it should have been bigger news. I think it should have been something that, but because it's not in America, it's not something that is going to be part of our mass consciousness. Only those who look to world news and what's happening in the world would be conscious of it. Otherwise, like, oh, when, when does this affect us? You know, if, is it going to start World War III? That's the only time that it will be reported on as something that is part of mass consciousness. You know, something, it's something everyone is aware of. But I think if the government of India is shut down by mass farmer protest, you know, that should be pretty uh, big. And they did it through horizontality and direct action. So it's basically like for the direct action politics crowd, very big, very nice. Good to, good to see. But I wanted to, let's see, this is still, this is kind of in the consumer choice camp of news, but I just wanted to do another fluff piece before I run out of time for the whole show, because I do have this other, two other articles that I kind of want to get to. But I got two things from Tree Hugger, because I just, I just pulled these just, just now, really, because I just wanted to find more food-related stories that kind of fit. And this one kind of does, or it doesn't. No, it intersects with food waste overall, not so much veganism, but it also, it tickles me because I worked in a supermarket and just like how Mao sent all the urban students to work for the farms for a few years to like, you know, get a taste for peasant life before they help with the land reform, you know, Mao sends the, you know, the educated elite to the farms, you know, I think it is part of every American or other, and if, if you live in society, I think part of your education in life should be doing quote unquote minimum wage jobs. I think it should be something that's required, planned out. It's something that didn't happen to me because either I wasn't, I didn't elect to, I didn't, and I'm talking about like, I didn't work minimum wage jobs while I was a teenager when you're quote unquote supposed to, because when I was in high school, it didn't seem like anywhere around. Now there's now there's a preponderance of them, but that's you know that's now. It never seemed like there was enough of these jobs, or it seemed like it was it was such a matter of luck that I'd be hired by them. But they they have their own turnover. But it doesn't like you don't see help wanted signs in all these minimum wage areas. If you don't see that as a teen, you're not thinking, oh, I could get a job there. I could get a job there. You know, I had my chance to work as a teenager at Macy's, and it was like. I basically missed it because I didn't have my working paper yet. And it took me like a few more days. I'm like, okay, I'll be back in a few days. And then they didn't hire me. And after that, I'm like, well, done with this. So anyway, headline is, and again, going back to the UK, it seems like all the cool UK stories are, I mean, all the cool stories are in the UK. Supermarket eliminates use by dates on milk, tells shoppers to use the sniff test. So a particular store chain called Morrison's wants to reduce the amount of milk going to waste unnecessarily. Now, this article doesn't even hit on the you know stats about like how much milk is basically dumped when the price of milk is so low that milk farmers can't sell it properly. Like they have too, there's a, too much of a surplus of milk. And in New York, like metric, a uh, frick ton of gallons get dumped. So this was filed by Katherine Martinko, published just last week. 
People in Britain will have to start relying on their noses rather than their eyeballs when detecting whether or not to con a container of milk is still good to drink. A major supermarket chain, Morrison's, has announced that it will be eliminating use-by dates on 90% of milk sold in stores by the end of January. The decision is part of an effort to reduce the enormous quantities of milk that are discarded due to consumer misunderstanding over printed expiration dates. This waste results in unnecessary carbon entering the atmosphere, entering the atmosphere, and the squandering of valuable resources required to raise dairy cattle. Morrison says it will keep using best before dates, which indicate the date at best the milk loses its optimal taste, but does not instantly go bad. This is something a lot of people can't comprehend. It goes into this. It offers some basic guidance for assessing milk's drinkability, which though it might be helpful to some, indicates an amusing yet appalling cluelessness about food. So it's not just the little kids that are clueless about food. Now, of course, they're clueless about what food is. But, of course, if you, again, like with the cognitive dissonance story, if you ask people about their food and where it comes from, uh, all kinds of funny things happen. Don't ask me about it. <laughs> Customers should check milk by holding the bottle to their nose. If it smells sour, then this is the Guardian. If it smells sour, it's spoiled. If it has curdled in lumps and formed, that also is a sign that it should not be used. Milk's life can be extended by keeping it cool and keeping bottles closed as much as possible. The move is hoped to cut down on the 330,000 tons of milk that are wasted in the UK every year, roughly 7% of the whole national production. The vast majority of waste occurs in the home, with The Guardian reporting that milk is the third most wasted food item after potatoes and bread which at least go to the compost pile, but still takes an enormous amount of energy to, you know, farm that stuff. Numbers are high elsewhere, too. Denise Philippe, senior advisor to the National Zero Waste Council and Metro Vancouver, told Treehugger that in Canada, one million cups of milk are wasted daily, and dairy and eggs make up 7% of the most prominent wasted foods by weight. Although the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has made some progress on decoding food expiry dates for shoppers, the problem has not been solved. Can't just rely on consumer choice. The Consumer Foods Forum has also recommended global simplification of food expiry dates, but nothing, maybe this is a UK writing thing, call it uh, expiry dates, but uh, you know, expiration dates, but I'm going to keep saying expiry. Expiry. But nothing has been set in stone or is binding. Most labels are voluntary and arbitrary. So that's one thing to take. So that's one, one thing one to know. Use by dates or best by dates are arbitrary and they're voluntary. They're not something that's mandated or put on by the company or whatever. It's something that's actually put on by the stores. So except for foods that expire in less than 90 days, although even then, as Philippe explains, it is up to businesses to determine which food has less than 90 day shelf life. The range of interpretation of this is significant. Best before dates can be applied at the point of processing and manufacturing, but also at the point of assembly. There is little guidance on how to determine what the actual date is, nor what expertise is required to determine that date. This means that best before dates are too often applied inconsistently. So she goes on to say that these date labels are one of the leading causes of food loss and waste. While CFIA, through its food label modernization, this is again back to the Canada food labeling, Canada's agency, 
has made changes such as standardizing date formats. For example, reducing confusion of whether the label 1 slash 2 refers to January 2nd or February 1st. But this is this is the problem in the bilingual country of, of Canada because, you see, the, the this is only confusing if you go between English and French. Because in France and other non-Anglo languages, dates are day first, then month, not month, then day. There is still a lack of public understanding that best before refers to peak freshness and does not reference any health or safety concern. So this goes back to my experience in grocery stores. Because I think grocery store is the kind of worker, you know, Maoist version of like going back to the farm today that we could force everyone to do like you get you, six months you work in a grocery store because a grocery store is, is a kind of service slash shop slash place of work and labor that everyone actually goes to or uses unless you are super rich and you just have other people do your shopping for you but that's what i'm referring to i was a home shopper i was shopping for those who didn't shop for themselves and they would have confused demands about expiration dates they would ask you to read the expiration date or you can only, we had a, like a general rule where, where you had to, or it was a rule for certain customers that, that, that would be put on, um, on the order that you had to get food, anything that expired, like usually dairy stuff. It had to be a week out from the expiration date. And if, even if it was just five days away, they would say, I can't eat that. It'll go bad before I eat it. And I would say, or I wasn't allowed to say, ma'am, it's just a recommendation. It will not be spoiled five days from now. You can eat it after that. It just won't taste the best. But that's what they're complaining about. It has to taste perfect, even though it's all processed bullcrap food. <laughs> if you want, you know, if you want good food, you got to get it, make it yourself or fresh, whatever. But yeah, when it came to milk or the, especially the yogurt, because there's certain yogurt that just like would not sell. So like the only stuff on the shelf would be like close to expiring and I would, or to find the right thing that hadn't expired or, or it was a week away. I had to dig for it. It took time. It was a waste of my time as a worker. Anyway, ran over. And that is why Morrison's change might not be as effective as it hopes. Simply eliminating use by while keeping best before might be too subtle a change for most shoppers to grasp. A bolder change of language would be a better option. As Philippe suggests, food manufacturers could remove best before date labels altogether and replace with clearer wording that provides explicit direction, like peak quality or a combination of a use by slash freeze by which I also see more and more, which I think is something certain companies are doing. Don't quote me on that, but I've seen it before. The UK's anti-food waste charity, RAP, sees Morrison's move as a positive step, one that will hopefully influence other supermarkets to do the same. It shows real leadership. We look forward to more retailers reviewing date labels on their products and taking action. But this is better than like, you know, putting on the consumers and, oh, aren't people stupid? You can't fix stupid. Okay, well, you can lean on the supermarkets to have better labels or just not have them. 
uh, which gets to the last um, last paragraph here. Rap CEO Marcus Grover tells The Guardian, People need not wait around for supermarkets or food manufacturers to take action, however. They can also just use their own senses to assess whether or not they like to eat or drink something. If something looks and smells fine, it probably is, especially if it's going to be cooked thoroughly. This takes practice, of course, but considering that most of us eat three times a day, there's a lot of opportunity for that. So that's that's the fun story. Next story is more um, more theory almost, but it's um, it's actually an expansion on a um, in one of the articles about um, autonomous uh, movements that uh, you know for uh, radical change. The uh, compasseros were mentioned, and I hadn't ever explained or mentioned them in previous episodes. So let's do that just by just by chance. Uh, Tree Hugger has a, a new article. Sorry, uh, from the summer of last year, written by an autumn sp- Spain, titled Food Sovereignty, Definition, Principles, and Importance. So this is just discussing the concept of food sovereignty. It was coined in 1996 by the La Via Campesera, a transnational movement of small-scale farmers, peasants, and agricultural workers, and indigenous groups that specifically defined it as the right of people's to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods, and the right to define their own food and agricultural system. Notice animals and animal rights aren't mentioned in that, because that might include animals. So, La Viva Campesera emerged during the early 90s in opposition to the increasingly industrialized model of agriculture that created exploitation, displacement, and deep inequities in the food system. Since the term food sovereignty was coined, it has gained prominence worldwide as a decentralized movement acting in solidarity with other social justice movements to support self-determination and human rights, in this case by seeking a more just, sustainable, and democratic food system. A lot of key buzzwords there, right? But let's define a food system, because they include that there. Definition, food system. What is a food system? Food system involves a comprehensive range of actors and activities that contribute to the production, processing, distribution, consumption, and disposal of food products. So here's the history of food sovereignty. Concept of it is rooted in much older food traditions as well as historical struggles for autonomy and self-determination. For millennia, indigenous people, subsistence, and peasant farmers, herders, fishers, so, so on, managed their own sustainable food systems. Colonialization often dismantled these gathering and production practices and replaced them with methods that devalued land, local cultural knowledge about how to find, grow, and distribute food in a sustainable manner. The accelerating industrialization of food systems worldwide in the 20th century further disrupted traditional practice, particularly since the Green Revolution that employed biotech and chemical inputs like synthetic fertilizers that are made of oil and pesticides also petroleum-based, to vastly increase crop productivity. So it feeds everybody, but at great cost, and a lot of it is wasted thanks to capitalism anyway. It also doesn't get to everyone. So it also concentrated land ownership and controlled food production in the hands of large corporations that control these technologies. Despite promises that these new practices and techs would solve world hunger, global food insecurity has actually grown significantly in recent decades. 
The use of minimally regulated or unregulated synthetic and toxic agricultural fertilizer and pesticides that cause air, water, and other soil pollution raise additional concerns about the environment and health impacts of industrial food production. So, too, did the proliferation of unhealthy processed foods that were enabled by the ramp-up of commodity production since... Boy, this is tree hugger, but they're using a lot of, like, Marxist kind of, like, leftist terms here, like, you know, commodity production. Since the Great Re- the Green Revolution. Over time, additional concerns arose about the growing... By the way, Green Revolution, very much a corporate buzzword. Um, it's not really used by... It's just used generally to refer to this change, sea change to industrial farming. Like, in the rest of the world, beyond America. The creation of the WTO provided another rallying point for the nascent food sovereignty movement. Critics of the WTO accused it of pushing trade policies that sought to concentrate agriculture where labor and production costs were lowest, like Mexico and expanded monocultural crops. So um, hopefully if you have some knowledge on these issues, you'll know all of this already. Let's discuss the principles of food sovereignty. In 2007, many of the grassroots groups that were part of the Compasseras and other networks gathered in Mali for an international forum on food sovereignty. It was named for the Malian goddess of fertility. The Nyalehe Forum established the following six principles. Focus on food for people. People, not corporations, should be at the center of food, fishery policies. All people have the right to sufficient, healthy, and culturally appropriate foods, including the hungry and other marginalized. An example of this principle can be seen in the proliferation of urban farms and gardens, especially in communities considered food deserts, where free and low-cost fruit and vegetables are made available, but certainly not enough. Values food providers. Value and protection and protect the rights of those who cultivate, grow, harvest, and process foods, including migrants. Food sovereignty rejects policies that undervalue workers and threatens their livelihoods and health. Localized food systems. Food sovereignty puts community first, meeting local and regional food needs before international trade. It rejects free trade policies that exploit developing countries and restrict their right to protect local farmers and food supply. It advocates consumer protections that shield people from poor quality, unhealthy or unsafe food, using inappropriate food aid and GMOs. Though it seems to use GMO blanketly, but yes, inappropriate use of GMOs is corporate use. The tension between local food needs and international trade can be clearly seen today in Africa, where a new green revolution is occurring. Though agricultural reforms in tech, it aims to improve food security by massively increasing food production with the use of GMOs, fertilizers, pesticides, and other industrial methods. In practice, it has often had unintended consequences for small farmers and rural communities, creating debt, land grabbing by foreign agribusiness interests, displacement, and chemical contamination of soil and water supplies. So to put it in the context of America, maybe to put in, in, in um, to refer to things that people are generally conscious of, uh, all these Me- Mexican immigrants over the last 30 years, or even 40 years, has been due to the Green Revolution in Mexico and Latin America that displaced all of these small farmers and their way of doing things. By industrializing made all of them landless and broke. And they had to go somewhere to survive. That's why they went north. And that's why it came in you know, way. It comes in waves. But for the most part, it, it occurred. 
Uh, let's see. These aren't numbered, but the next one is local control. You can't just be local and owned by corporations. It has to be managed locally. Food sovereignty movement supports local control of resources such as land, water. You know, no, this should be, this is social ecological politics in a nutshell. No, this should be new, new stuff for the common listener. Uh, but I'll just list them out. Build knowledge and skills. Works with nature. Talks about indigenous food sovereignty. Food sovereignty versus food security. Food security has been repeatedly recognized internationally as a basic human right. The Rome Declaration on World Food Security states that food security at an individual, household, national, regional, and global level, if achieved, when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, you know, it's very bureaucratic language, but, you know, precise. While food security is an ever-evolving concept, it generally embraces the current agro-industrial food system in the service of ensuring that everyone has adequate, safe, healthy food. The term food sovereignty was, in part, a reaction to the way food security had been defined. Rather than working within the current industrial agricultural system, food sovereignty seeks to transform it into a just, democratic, bottom-up system in which people, not corporations, control the means of production and distribution. That has a name. Food sovereignty values ecological sustainability and trade that respects the rights of everyone affected by the food system a.k.a. the Green Party platform on food also. So we take our cues from that. And, yeah, so that's nice to review there. So in the last uh, waning minutes of the episode, I just wanted to quickly cover, so I'm not going to read all of it, but it's about a Puerto Rican uh, farmers basically doing permaculture. That's the short, that's the summary of it, folks. There there you go. Don't need anything else. Do you, do you need to know anything else? Website called Portside, material of interest to people on the left. You have to read more, but it's not super revolutionary stuff, but hey, it's, it's cool. It's, it's fine. Uh, an act of rebellion, the young farmers revolutionizing Puerto Rico's agriculture. Did you know that Puerto Rico imports 85% of its food? It, was one, it had once a thriving agricultural hub thanks to tropical climate, rich biodiversity, and sustainable farming traditions. These farms are part of an agroecology movement that seeks food sovereignty. Oh, isn't that great that I covered food sovereignty first? Now that I, when I reference it, you know what I'm talking about. So what does food sovereignty look like in practice, right? Well, it includes doing this uh, thing called agroecology, which I believe can also be called permaculture. They're kind of the same thing. I wouldn't say there's much of a difference if there is one. It's just a matter of, you know, different words. They're synonyms. So, um, referring to Puerto Rico again, less than 2% of the workforce is employed in agriculture, and tens of thousands of acres of arable land sit idle. Meanwhile, 85% of the food eaten in Puerto Rico is imported. Grocery prices are among the highest in the U.S., and last year, two in five people experienced food insecurity. Unemployment is brutal. Prices are brutal. Migration from the island is brutal, says Denise Santos, who runs Puerto Rico's food bank. Puerto Rico, a mountainous Caribbean archipelago, is also one of the places in the world most affected by extreme weather, such as droughts and the more recent 2017 Hurricane Maria. In the face of so many challenges, a new wave of interest in food and farming among younger Puerto Ricans is flourishing. It's part of a wire movement demanding, well, political change. So here is a quick breakdown of agroecology, but it's also basically describing permaculture too. 
Agroecology is low-impact agriculture that works with nature and local conditions to produce food sustainably so as to protect biodiversity, soil quality, and draw carbon out of the atmosphere. So you don't need some tech-tech Elon Musk uh, machine that he uh, charges millions for. It involves a set of farming principles and practices that are adapted, that can be adapted to any ecosystem. So anyway, instead of reading through all of this, I will just point out that a streamer friend of mine, Bread Theory, Zach, um, he's a landscape uh, architect at the moment, or landscaper, and he has been reviewing uh, permaculture design forces on his uh, Twitch streams. So I heavily, so I'll link to them in the show notes. And I, of course, have uh, appeared on some of them to comment as well, because, you know, I'm into permaculture as well. I'm pretty knowledgeable, not like an expert expert, but I can, I can talk about it at length. But really, it's just like, oh, here's these cool, fun ideas. It's like, they're like life hacks, but for gardening. And it goes through the um, experiences of a few of these uh, kind of young farmers. Uh, the school hopes, let's see, oh, yeah. So it talks about a particular, like a school of agroecology. Skipping ahead. There's a school that celebrates its thousandth graduate during the project's 10th anniversary. It's a project that, you know, trains these uh, farmers in agroecology. After Hurricane Maria struck and destroyed 80% of crops across the island, this organization, the oldest food sovereignty and farm justice network, where um, Panga Roga serves on the board, organized solidarity brigades to clean up and repair farms so they could quickly start producing again. At Jasco Bravo, located just 20 miles west of the capital, San Juan, only five of the 69 acres rented from the Department of Agriculture are being farmed. The densely vegetated terrain is very fertile but requires substantial investment to clear. There's no irrigation system and limited roads. The government won't rent smaller plots, and accessing credit is tough, so a large area of public arable land remains abandoned. Pangaroga says, We saw Maria very, very risky to be dependent on imports for our food, and we have enough good land in Puerto Rico to sustain our fruit, vegetable, and starchitary diet needs but we lack capital resources and political will. The Guerrero Project is the collective brainchild of four graduates from Jasco Bravo, whose main objective is to improve access to affordable food. You know, they're just doing the good thing. See, the land belongs to a New York-based order of nuns who agreed to rent them 11 acres in 2017 for a symbolic amount, a dollar an acre, after they'd almost given hope of finding somewhere affordable. This group of, you know, agro-farmers agroecological so um but it's not just a farm it's a community hub it's a permaculture lab you know it's a permaculture project it's all it's all interconnected all good ecological politics let's skip ahead to the end to kind of parting words they recently started experimenting with an intensive but pretty sustainable farming practice which has roots in ancient civilizations like the mayans and aztecs Aquaponics involve raising fish, like tilapia, in tanks and then circulating the nutrient-rich water to nourish soil-free plant beds of herbs and salad grains before recirculating it into the tanks. But while innovative small farms, farmers markets, pop-up kitchens, and vegetable box schemes, and farm-to-table restaurants are gaining popularity, it's not easy competing in the an economy designed to favor foreign investments in U.S. exports. Robert said, Eating is a political act, and reducing our dependence on imported food will help create a locally-based, more sustainable economy and environment. 
We've got a long way to go, but I'm going to die trying. This was written uh, by a Guardian journalist. But unlike others, Guardian journalism is available for everyone to read regardless of what they can afford. Yeah, so was, I guess this was for the Guardian. Which is why it kind of takes its, its um, simple explanatory tack. Okay. And I've waited to the last minute to thank you for listening to the show, uh, which is as a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback or ideas that people have. Uh, but still, I get no messages. So you can message me, though, on Facebook, on Twitter. And I have an email. It's uh, 3 left show at uh, Gmail. This program is made as part of an independent community radio station, so please support us materially. I also have a Patreon that you can go to, 3 Life Show. There's also Libra Pay. Please, um, please become a subscriber. It would really help me. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but the full archive is found at 3lefts.news. That's, uh, of course, the most important thing to do is keep the ideas, thinking, and projects you talked about here and practice yourself. Um, do that prefigurative politics, and if enough of us are doing it, 